There is a trigger warning on this episode as we are discussing war and it is not suitable for children. Today's guest was born and lived all of his life in war-torn Kabul, Afghanistan. As a child, his memories are of shelling during the Mahajin War and later of cruel public demonstrations of the Taliban rule. As a seven-year-old, he found work in a smelting factory and later as a bar manager in the UK embassy, defying local Sharia laws to handle and serve alcohol to Western staff. It was this job which resulted in him fleeing for his life to neighbouring borders and entrusting international people smugglers to get him to Australia. A four-year journey. Episode 92, Esmat. Welcome to One Moment, Please, the podcast where our guests take a moment to tell their stories of how they've overcome adversity to achieve success, and you take a moment to tune in. So bring on the inspiration. Hi, Fiana. Thank you very much for having me on your podcast. Well, I first heard of you because um, we have a mutual friend, Natalie Stockdale, who wrote the book Campfire, Campfire for the Heart. She's got a few. Which one was your story in? Uh, mine was uh, on the Campfire for the Heart. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And... Um, she said, you need, to, you need to have a chat to Esmat. And as we speak, I'm sitting outside doing this podcast and thinking it was going to be quieter and less echoey than inside. And I've got the birds and I can hear, the, I can hear some delivery tr- truck or the garbage <laughs> truck going in the background. So I do apologize for that. Um, I'm hoping the microphone won't pick that up. But your story is um, one, well, I find it very inspirational because you are an Afghani refugee, have now settled in Australia, and the process in which you got out um, sounds fairly horrific, actually, to be honest, in terms of that process and why you had to get out. So take me back to sort of growing up in Afghanistan. What was it like? Because it's obviously very different to growing up in Australia. Uh, thank you, Fiona. So I, I'm just going to go a little bit back. Uh, when I was born in Afghanistan, it was 1989, and I was born right, like uh, probably a few years before the uh, Mujahideen war started in Kabul, and it was, it was really a really tough war between. Uh, it was a civil war between like all the Mujahideen they fighting, fighting to each other like, and they burn most of the part of the couple. And I was just a little kid at that time. And then uh, I just remember really a little bit of that. But I, I do remember that we were like escaping from one suburb to another suburb. And most of my childhood was spent underground because of the rockets and bullets and all this bombing and all this sort of stuff. And uh, yes. So when you say underground, what... What do you mean underground? Are you in caves? Are you in a a, a water duct situation? What what do you mean when you're saying underground? Uh, it was sort of like a uh, like a cave, but uh, what we were doing, like uh, I w- I was a little kid, but but most uh, we were living like in in a suburb, and uh, the neighbors, like uh, five or six houses, they get together, and the man they just come to one house and they dig the ground. They were digging like really deep. Uh, and then 
they get all those dirts and they put it like in a sandbags and put it around it and they make like sort of like a tunnel. And then when, when it was really rocket launching everywhere, so all the kids and women, most of them were just going there and we were spending there like days and nights. Wow. And yeah, because, uh, because it was everywhere was like, uh, like a firewalk. We, we could see all the bullets everywhere. And like who was they, the war between? Was it Russia? Uh, after Russia, it was Mujahideen. It was all uh, different, uh, different groups. Like, uh, because uh, after the Russia, when the Mujahideen took over Afghanistan, and then they were fighting uh, uh, for the uh, for the different position in government, so they wanted to be on power, and they they couldn't they couldn't do that, and because they didn't have experience how to run a government and how to do like a like a country, it it was not their job, and then that's why they they started fighting between each other. So, how old were you during this time? I was I was. I was just a little kid, probably I was four or five, something like that. Okay, so really little. Yeah, really okay. little kid. Yeah. Wow. And I'm imagining sort of quite a simplistic lifestyle. Yeah. It was everything was so hard. Like while I was a child and I, I didn't know much about it, but all I could see was just uh, all these rockets and bullets and shooting and bombing and uh, yeah, not enough food. We couldn't go to school. We couldn't, we couldn't do anything as a normal child. So, did you understand that though at the time, or was it just normal for I, you? It was normal for me because I didn't know that what the war was like. What the other side of the world life looked like, I, I didn't, I didn't understand about other part of the world. All mm-hmm. I could see was just, I was thinking that everyone is the same. Mm-hmm. Till, uh, yeah, then, then when uh, the Taliban came, so I was a bit grown up. I was seven, I think, and then on that time, uh, the the war finished in Kabul. And then the Taliban started torturing people, of course. And I experienced that for another four years, I think. I was in Kabul and I could see a lot of people were beating by Taliban. And uh, it's in my book as well uh, that they they brought people in the soccer stadium and among the crowd, they they just cut people's hands. shoot people uh, because of different reasons that I say, oh, that that woman had a relationship with a man without having married. And that's why they they shot a woman in front of us in a soccer uh, field. It was many people there, many people there, and just in front of everyone. Did you know that that was going to happen? Like, were you there for that or were you there for another reason and they just happened to bring this person out? Uh, no, we didn't know that. We didn't know that because it was a soccer match. Oh, it was uh, a match. Okay. Yeah, it was a match. And then uh, suddenly before the soccer started, 
they brought a woman and I didn't know because I I didn't expect that, that happened that. And then my my uncle, he took me there and I was with his sons. And then he just said, oh, you you shouldn't you shouldn't see this. But we were we were kids. We were so curious and we were just saying, what's happening? What's happening? Mm. And my uncle just uh, hugged us and tried to close our eyes. And then suddenly we have heard the shot, the gunshot. And then well, when we when we just wanted to see that, we saw that the woman is just uh, clubs on the ground and there was blood. And, then they dragged the women back. And after that, the soccer started. So it was, it was very normal. So it was almost as if it was, um, now we're just going to start a soccer match after we've just ex- executed this woman. So they were really normalizing the violence. Yes, yes, that's true. And sometimes they, they brought someone, like if someone was stealing something or something, they were just there cutting their hands in front of people. Some would say, how does a regime like the Taliban take hold in a country? And I know that you were really young, but do you have any idea of how it started to grow and how they sort of became uh, so widespread within the country? Well, it's really hard to explain this because... um, because when I, I was very young, but but still I could, you know, when you grow up in that sort of situation, even if you're a kid, you're still listening to the news. You're always just mm. curious about everything. And uh, the Taliban, we, we didn't know about Taliban before. They just like appeared like really in a very short time. And then they came over and they took all over Afghanistan. Mm. It was just something like grown up like pop out from the ground and we we didn't know that how that happened and nobody had no idea on that time that how fast they came and how fast they grow and they just took everywhere like exactly the the same as this time that happened on the 15th of august mm. last so year so was that so it was that that quick in terms of them taking over like weeks yeah, it was, it was just Initially. So, yeah, so quick, so quick. Because uh, before that, the Mujahideen were everywhere and they were fighting, of course, with each other. They were in a big war. But suddenly another name came, Taliban. And it was like everyone, everyone was talking about that, that they are a group of people and they are really good people. They are coming and they try to end the war and they they bring uh, an Islamic regime and everything will be peaceful. That's why, I don't know, maybe most people gave up mm. and they just came. And as soon as they took over all Afghanistan, they started torturing people for different reasons. They stopped women getting education and they, they didn't let us to go to school unless we had like a proper, even I was a kid and I should have one of those things they call it, like a lungi. And, On your head, so you point yeah, to your head, like a yeah, hat. Okay. Yeah, like something like that. And and at school also, 
all the teachers should have big beard and have to teach all the Islamic things. So there was no science, no any other subjects. So all they were just focusing on how to how to pray, how to follow uh, the Islamic religion, and that's it. And apart from that, uh, they did not care about the economy. They did not care about the international relation. They did not care about uh, the human rights. And they were just forcing people to do what they wanted. How long did you live in that, um, in those conditions under the, that sort of structure of life? Uh, it's been around four years, I think. Before the Americans and the coalition came in? Yeah. Yeah, it was four okay. years, something yeah, between three and a half to four years. Uh, I think four years, yeah. We, we have lived like that and and we have seen so many things. I was, I was working because uh, it was really hard to, to get job in there and it was really hard for a man to feed the family. So mm-hmm. everyone had to work. I was only seven and I was going to work in a shop it was like a foundry shop Uh, we were just casting some aluminium uh, stuff so uh, i was working there and every day i could see on the street that what was gonna happen and how they were beating people on the road i have seen so many women which were beating just in front of my eyes and they yeah, they, they did not think about human rights at all. What was the vibe and the attitude in the country when the Americans and the coalition came into the country to fight the Taliban? Oh, it was totally different. It was totally different. After, after they removed the Taliban, it's sort of like a new hope, a new life. And, you know, like when after a heavy, heavy winter, just summer comes and everything just grows up. What year was that? Uh, it was 2001 or 2002, I think. Okay, yeah. I don't really remember, but, you know, after the 11th September, so yeah. not long after that, when the American came and we had a new president, his name was Hamid Karzai, and things things have changed really quickly and people started going to work and plenty jobs everywhere the construction started and uh, the government started uh, i mean really international security help was there and everyone was feeling safe up to 2005 we had really good life really good life and everyone was happy because after mm. that torturing times we had some relaxed peaceful and uh, financially everyone was a little bit stable than before so which was really good what changed around that 2006 time frame after 2005 things slowly started changing again uh, because the Taliban was totally removed 
by 2005. So we couldn't hear much about the Taliban and all we could hear about investing and uh, international forces and Americans and these things. But after 2005, I don't know what happened. The Taliban started again to, mm. to just show up and people are just talking, oh, the Taliban started uh, to build their group again. Some part of like, but not in Kabul, it was far from Kabul, the other provinces. And it took a few years and they, are, they were getting just stronger and stronger and they started the suicide attacks, which Afghanistan gone back to in a really difficult situation that people were just uh, so worried every single day that anytime anything could happen, lots of uh, suicide attacks, especially in Kabul. And they started uh, fighting against uh, international forces as well. Did your family ever consider moving out of Kabul? I mean, you've gone through um, now two wars. Did did your family ever discuss moving out of the city into the more of a rural setting, or was it just because that was where the work was that you needed to stay? Uh, because we uh, we did not have uh, any like a farm or nothing in the village. And it's really hard to get a job in the village. So unless you're a farmer and you have the land. So we didn't have the land. And my father was working in Kabul. And we never we never thought about going out of Kabul because I was born in Kabul and my father and my mom, they both grown in Kabul and they were sort of, you know, that, that was their home. So they couldn't they couldn't go out of couple somewhere else but a few times my father said we got to go to Mazar-e Sharif which is another province and it's still a big a major city but it didn't happen and we were still at Kabul and then later on I got a job and after school I got a job then yeah we just stayed in Kabul. So you're seven working in the lead smelting factory and yeah. now fast forward where in 2005, 2006, where things have changed, the Taliban are now starting to, to come back. When you hear the Americans talk on the podcast that I've listened to and any of the soldiers, they can, they can tell the shift in terms of the attitude of the people as well. They weren't as welcome. Um, people weren't as helpful. They could tell that the Taliban was coming coming back. When did you start working for the consulate? Uh, I started working in 2009. Yeah, I started. I forgot what month was that, but it was between June to December 2009 when I started working. And it was the UK consulate you're working for? Yeah, UK embassy. Embassy, okay. So given the fact that the Taliban were on the rise again, you're now nine years on from that, so they're even more of a foothold back into the country. Why did you take a job with essentially a consulate of, of the Taliban's enemy? Did you not think that that was risky or did you think they're going to be in the country forever, so not as risky? Like, what was it that prompted you to 
to seek uh, a job at the embassy? Uh, as a as a young as a young man at that time, I I was always thinking to build my life because financially we were not in a good situation. I, my, my father was uh, he was working, but it was not enough. So I was feeling a big responsibility for my family too. And then I knew that that job was risky. And before that, I took another risk, but my mom didn't let me. I, I went through uh, a, a test for the international security forces, which was in the provinces. I wanted to become an interpreter with them. I win the test and I passed the test. Then uh, there, there was a process they were calling badging. So I got my badge and I got my ID, everything. So I was assigned to move to one of the dangerous province, which was more Taliban in there. Uh, we were a group of 12 people and uh, we went to book uh, our ticket as well. But when I came back home and I wanted to pack up my bag, my mom said, where are you going? I wanted to lie to my mom because I knew she's not going to let me. But I said, what if I, what if something happened to me? And then I, I don't want to take this. I just told my mom the truth. I said, mom, I have to go because... Uh, honestly, I was just focusing on financial situation at that time. I said, mom, they're going to pay like $700 a month and it's a good money. I know it's a bit risky, but I tried to explain. Mom said, no, whatever it is, I can't let you go. And then we had a bit of argument, but my mom won and she didn't let me go. Moms always win. Yes. <laughs> uh, yeah. And she didn't let me go then now i got a call from them after two days they said why you didn't turn up and i i tried to just say oh my mom was sick so that's why i couldn't come because i still didn't want to lose the opportunity uh then they said okay so we will assign you for another mission and then they assigned me for another one and Again, my mom said, no, if you go there, then that's it. Our relation is finished from now on. So you're not my son and I'm not your mom. And if wow. you want to go, it was that serious. And then again, I, then I called them. And I was not the first one. Uh, when, when we had the test inside the class, uh, that was the first question. They said, are you permitted from your family to go there or no? If you're not leave the class right now and because they, they knew that it's going to happen for most of the people it was really a dangerous job it was really a dangerous job so many interpreters they got killed by taliban uh and my mom didn't let me again and when i called them i said that's what it is and they said okay you're blacklist from from this project so you can't you can't apply anymore because we told you from the beginning that are you permitted? I said, yeah, but I'm sorry. I apologize. I can't. <laughs> so she didn't let me. Then after that, I, I come back to your question. So 
I was working, uh, I had a little shop and one of my friends, he was working uh, at the UK embassy. He was working in the canteen. Uh, uh, and he, we, both of us were looking for work before. And, and one day he came to me and he said, we've got a position available as a waiter in, in the canteen. So are you interested? I said, yes, I am. And then he took me there. So I went through to the process because they really needed a top profile person as a reference from outside of embassy because it was really hard to trust someone to come in. Uh, and then I needed another three people from inside the embassy as well. And my friend found another two and he became my reference. I found another person from outside all friends they helped me and I got in I got the job as a waiter for the first probably three to six months and then I moved starting as a cashier so I, I got a job as a cashier and then after that I moved I moved to a very dangerous job which was running a bar and I became a bar manager which was totally against not just against the Taliban law it was against the Sharia law as well and the community and everyone didn't like that that's why I I, I got the job but I, I talked to my manager I said can you please write on my ID every one of us had an ID card to get into the embassy can you please write that still as a cashier not as a bar manager but my position was the bar manager. I said, when I came in, so I should have another card because it's so dangerous outside. Then they, I had two cards, two ID cards, and I was getting in with, with the cashier ID cards. And inside the embassy, I had another ID card as a bar manager. And I was running the bar. My life was very happy. Uh, I was working night shift and studied during the day. I was, I was now, very happy. Oh, um, you mentioned that it was against Islam law and Sharia law and you were brought up in a, a Muslim country being very strict in terms of the, the schooling and le, learning is, the, the faith of Islam at school. That was all you were allowed to, to learn. So at this stage, were you, are you or were you a practicing Muslim? I, yes, I did practice on that time. I was practicing, uh, I was praying like five times a day and I was still considered myself a good Muslim and because I was, I was always talking to other people and I, I love discussing about other religions and about different cultures mm -hmm. and I was reading the books as well. So that's why I was, I was considering myself an open mind Muslim, not mm -hmm. a strict Muslim. That that's so, why. So in the Muslim faith, and correct me on this because I'm 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 not um, well versed in the is is in Islam or the Muslim faith. My understanding is, if you're a Muslim, you're not meant to be touching alcohol. Is that correct? That's, that's right. But yet you took the job as a bar manager. Yeah. <laughs> 
as a practicing Muslim. Um, yeah. Was that just purely a financial decision or like how did you sort of even entertain that idea? Uh, yeah, it was it was a financial decision and also because I was focusing on my studying as well and that was the only opportunity that it could give me the chance to study what I wanted to study. And what I was thinking, like, uh, I was thinking that, yes, I am a Muslim and I shouldn't, I shouldn't touch the alcohol, but I was not drinking alcohol. I was serving alcohol and I knew it's a sin in, in our religion. But still, I, I had my own reason and I was taking that and I said, if I, if I go to the next world and if God asked me, I will say that I had a family to support and I had to study and I wanted to become an educated person. So, so maybe I had all these reasons. I know it, according to the religions, it's not a, it's not a logic reason. So, but, but I could, I could see that people are doing so many horrible, horrible things in the name of Islam and there is still Muslim people. And, and I, I, I didn't, I didn't hurt anyone. I didn't, I didn't do anything wrong. All I could do is I was just working, feeding my family because my father passed away and I, I was supporting family and I was studying. So that, that was something that I, yeah, I know, but I, I could cross the red line. How old were you when your father passed away? Uh, I was very young. I was probably 20 something when I, when my okay. father passed away. Yeah. All right. So you were 20 at the time. So was your father's death war related or was it natural causes? No, it was natural causes. Uh, it was not war related, but but uh, most of the death, even natural death, is war-related because of uh, trauma, because of sickness. I know at that time my father, whatever he had, he couldn't he couldn't go to the doctor. He couldn't yeah he couldn't cure. So it was really hard to get access to any any kind of medication. Does that leave you as as the only male in the family? And therefore, yes. the only one that was able to earn. Yes, unfortunately, right. yes. What were you studying? You've mentioned a few times that you took the job to enable you to study. What were you studying? Uh, I studied law, and yeah, that was that was my my future. I was thinking about that. All I was focusing, I was focusing to study law and become a lawyer, and fight for the women's rights because. Because my mom and my dad was not really in a good relationship, so also I had a lot of trauma from that, and I, I don't have a good experience. But yes, yeah, so, uh, most of the women are suffering from a different type of torturing by men in Afghanistan. So that's why that's what I wanted to become a lawyer, and I wanted to fight for this unfair inequality in Afghanistan. So really you wanted to become a lawyer for women's rights? That that's what I was wow. thinking. That that that's the incredible. only way, yeah, the only way that I could I could do something in the future was just just that. Because when I was reading the book, The History of Afghanistan, 
it was once upon a time Afghanistan was really good and women had really good rights in Afghanistan. But day by day, they just by uh, implementing the religions and religious law, so they took women's rights. So yeah, that's why that's why I wanted to bring those things back. How long were you working and living this double life as a bar manager? Uh, probably three years. At what stage did work like? How did word get out that you're working as a bar manager and not just a cashier? Well, it was really hard for me to hide because there were other Afghani people that they were working. And, right. you know, sometimes people just take things as a joke. And in in Afghani uh, language, we have got uh, the person who is serving alcohol. We call them Saki. Saki is the person who is serving alcohol. So that it can uh, from long, long time, it's on the book and everything. And sometimes they were just because the people who are inside the embassy they knew that what I was doing, and I was trying to hide this. But people just started calling me sometimes outside on the road, and they just say, "Hey, Saki, where are you going?" And I know that they were just it was just a joke, but but this. But were these really people that you worked with that were joking on the street or these are random people? No, they were working in the canteen. And right. I was, that's why I moved from the canteen to the bar. And that right. was, I was the first Afghan bar manager in there. They did not have it before. So mm. it was it was a girl from, from Nepal. Her name was Lakshmi. She was working in there. And when she left, I was her assistant for a few months, just once a week. And then when she left, uh, I I told my manager that, is that possible if I get a job? And he said, well, uh, let, me, let me see. And then when Lakshmi left, he said, the position is now available. You want to take it? Then I say, yeah, I'm going to take it. Even he mentioned that he said that, you know, this is dangerous. I said, yeah, I'm going to take it because I was thinking Kabul is safe. I was thinking that, yeah, of course, they can suicide, they can attack, but they don't worry about someone who is working the bar. Who will know about that? And I I didn't really think that serious, but, yeah, it was very serious. It could have taken my life. Mm. Explain what happened. And why you had to to leave? I I was working there one night when when I got a call from my mom because usually my mom did not sleep till I come back home and she was always awake till three o'clock in the morning and I got a call that I have heard and I got a like sort of warning. But I didn't care about that. I said, no, it's maybe it's a joke or something. Hang on, just say that again. You got a what? That was a kind of warning? Yeah, kind of warning. I've got a letter. I've got a letter that they said, stop what you're doing. It's, and I thought maybe it's a friend or maybe it's just, just a joke or something. Or maybe someone want to take my position. And 
I didn't really consider that as a as a threat. And I was thinking that should be all right because because I really believed on on the government. I really believed on the foreign forces because Afghanistan was surrounded, especially Kabul. We had really like everywhere was the government. I didn't see any Taliban, except from the suicide attack and these things was happening. But when I got a call from my mom, it was late night. I was about to leave that day said, but don't come back home. As soon as my mom mentioned, because I didn't talk to my mom about that later, and I was just shocked. And I said, oh, it's serious. I said, mom, what's, what, what happened? Please tell me. She said she was crying and she just said, don't come back home. Go somewhere else. And I was so shocked. And I said, mom, please tell me what, what happens. Is everything is okay? She said, a few people just entered and they were looking to find you. And, and they beaten me. And my mom was really hurt on that time. And I left, I left embassy, I went to the friend that who found the job for me, I just called him and I went to his place. I went to his place and I explained that this is what had happened and I don't know how was my mom. And he said, well, because he's been with foreign forces before as interpreter as well, and he left the job. He, he knew much better than me. He said, this is very dangerous. This is very dangerous. You, you, can't, you can't be here because they're going to kill you. Once you become the target, you, you're going to be killed. I was worried. I scared. Panic. Like everything just came together. I didn't know like what to do. I was just shaking and thinking that what am I going to do? And then he said, you have to, you have to leave. I said, leave where? I go to another city, I go to another province. I said, nah, they're gonna find you. They're gonna find you. If it comes to that point, they're gonna find you. Now you're the target. And then I, I was, because I didn't know where to go. I never been outside of Afghanistan before. And he, he said, I'll, the, 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 Possible way is just go to Pakistan because it's closest. So just get out of Afghanistan as soon as possible. I didn't even know how to go to Pakistan. He just helped me. He got me out of Afghanistan. I was in Pakistan. Are you comfortable with explaining how you got to Pakistan? Would that that put people at risk? It It was really, you know, scary time for me. Because mm-hmm. I was worried as well. My friend, he just gave me a hat, gave me a different Afghani clothes, and he just changed me a little bit. And he said, you should not sit in the front of the seat. Just sit in the back. And don't go to a restaurant if the, during the uh, trip, if they stop anywhere. Do not get out of the car. Just pretend most of the time sleep and put your heart on your face till you get there. Once you get there, quickly just jump on another car and cross the border. 
As soon as you cross the border, you will be safe. I exactly did what he said. And when I got to Pakistan, I was thinking coming back because I I didn't know what else I can do. I, I was worried. So, Esma, what are you? So, you're literally leaving with the clothes on your back? Even I didn't have a bag. Nothing. Nothing. Imagine no. I just left. I just left whatever I, I had. So, no money, no nothing, just left? Nothing, just left. I left everything like. My car was still there. I, I did not talk to university. Everything is just like when, you, when somebody say, okay, this is your last minute, pack up and go somewhere. I just lived like that. So how did you pay for the tra- – like I'm assuming you had to pay people along the way f- to, to smuggle you out of the country. How are you paying these people then? This is, this is just from Afghanistan to Pakistan. When I got right. to Pakistan, then I in in Pakistan I was there for for a few weeks. I was there, so everything managed later on, because this friend who found this job for me, we are like really close friend. We're yeah. really close friend, like a brother, and he helped me get out of Afghanistan. And then oh, he good. sold my car. He just managed everything, and he said, "You you should not come back," and. On the other hand, my mom was there. I left my mom for him and one of my cousins that he he helped me during this journey as well. And I talked to him. I said, this has happened. Because that, uh, yeah, so that, that was that was really panicking time for me. And then mm. I was in Pakistan and I didn't I didn't have anything to do. I was just thinking and worrying. And I said to my friend, what if I come back and go to the embassy? He said, no, nothing going to happen. You don't need to risk your life again because you have already did. So if you, if you do it again, if they get you, then that will be your last minute. Because so you need to speak up. I, 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 I missed what you said then because you went very soft. If you come back. Yeah, if I, if I said, if I come back, what if I come back and go to the embassy and I explain everything? My friend said, no, even if you explain, nothing happened. Nothing happened. No one no one do anything for you. All you do is that you will just lose your job and then, but your life will be at risk, still at risk, so you can't come back. And... Honestly, I was really panicked. I didn't really know what to do, what's going to happen to me. Because it's sort of a life with everything, then suddenly become nothing. You lose your family, friends, work, university, country, everything just, and you come with nothing. I mean, the first plan was obviously to get out of Afghanistan and get to Pakistan. At what point did you say, I'm not going to stay in Pakistan because you you made your way to Australia, which was a four-year journey. So why did you decide to to leave Pakistan? Honestly, I didn't even know about Australia. (laughs) What is Australia? (laughs) I'm going to go... 
I'm gonna go a little bit back uh, back to the embassy. Sure. I had a I had an Australian friend. I was running the bar. I was working at the bar, and she was a nurse. Her name was Sharon, and she was a nurse. She was her office and my bar was just like two meters away, and we made a friendship. And and she asked me most of the time to bring some mangoes from outside because they were not allowed to go out. <laughs> and I was bringing some manga and we were eating together uh, with, with hands and we did not cut like properly, no plates, yeah. nothing. We were just eating like that. And sometimes the other English people, when they were just watching us and they say, what are these guys doing? They're just eating <laughs> the manga like that. And, you know, it's a bit messy all around our mouth. And that was so funny. And... Yeah, so she was Australian, and sometimes she was talking about Australia, and I, I didn't want to know because she was saying, "Oh, Australia is very far from here. I live in Sydney. I live with my dog. I live with my mom," and uh, I didn't, I didn't really care about. Like, I was thinking, "Oh, Australia is so far. I didn't even know about Australia. That where Australia is, how Australia is." Uh, I knew a bit, a little bit about uh, about London because most of the people were from there, and I was working with. But I I had only one Australian friend, and I didn't know about Australia at all. She was asking a lot of questions about Afghanistan, but I did not ask about Australia. That how is Australia? Where is Australia? So I had no idea. I had no clue about Australia. And but anyway, she left uh, Afghanistan. She went to Kenya for work. Uh, then, yeah, when, when I was in Pakistan, it was the first time that I met Afghani people, Hazara people with a different language, but still they were speaking our language, but it was different, quite different accent. And I said, where you guys are from? They said, oh, we are from Pakistan. I said, how you speak my language? How you're Hazara? And they said, oh, we, we came here from a long time ago, 100 years ago when we came here. Now we're Pakistani and we are from Kuwaita. And they, they become friends with me. They explain things. And I didn't, I didn't even know that among them, there are a lot of smugglers as well. I thought as a friend because I've never been outside. And then they said, Oh yeah, what are you doing here? I said, oh, I'm just, I'm just here. Uh, I didn't want to share anything, and I said, I'm just here. Uh, and then slowly, I made friendship with one of them, and then he said, Oh yeah, if you're in danger, so better you leave. I said, Leave where? I, I already left. He said, No, uh, some people they go to Indonesia, and then from Indonesia they take people to Australia. And I said, how it's going to happen? Because I, I have nothing here. I have no passport, nothing. How I can go to another country? And then he said, uh, you don't worry. I want to talk. And then this guy is just like, so stick to me. And he just did not leave me till he just kept talking and he took me, yeah, yeah, let's go. Let's go. I'll pay for the, for the photo uh, if you don't believe. He took me to the photo shop and they took two, three photos. And, and the next day he came with a passport. 
unbelievable, a different name, a passport, my photo in there. I said, no way, this is not my name. This is, this is a different passport. I said, you don't need to worry about anything. And I was talking to my friend who is in Kabul. I was just keep contacting him because he, he was a bit experienced than me. I just told him, oh, hey, this is happening like that. What's, what's your idea? What should I do? He was calling me Bola. He said, Bola, take the chance and just go. And I said, I don't know. This is a, this is a different passport. Do you know what I'm saying? It's, it's not me. It's, it's a different passport. He said, well, I don't know about that, but just talk to them if, if they save you, but don't pay them anything up front. Let them talk to me. If they take you, then I will pay them. And I said, they, they don't want to do that. He said, yeah, if they do that, then go. I said to that guy, I said, I'm, I'm not going to pay any money because I don't have money. One of my friends has money, but he's in Kabul. He said, yeah, yeah, no problem. I said, are you serious? He said, yes, you, you can go. If, once you get there, and then you can pay. Then... That journey happened like that, and they take me to. Well, it was really a dangerous journey as well. Again, take me to Malaysia, from Malaysia to Indonesia. Once and how they, how are they getting you to Malaysia, and then to Indo? I flew from from Pakistan. Oh, you you flew? Yeah, yeah, I flew. Uh-huh. I flew with with the fake passport. I flew with a fake name, and it was it was absolutely amazing when when i got there i didn't even know that when i got to the airport that like, i didn't know they said first time on a plane first, first time, time like everything yeah. yeah and i didn't wow. know that what's gonna happen everyone was getting down there and they said they gave us a hat like a hat and they said all right one guy is coming and just you follow them and i followed them and then i got there there was another car. I didn't know where they take me. They take me from from there direct to somewhere like an accommodation. And yeah, it was. I mean, how they manage? It was it was really really difficult to explain. So hang on a minute. I just want to I just want to clarify this. So they put you on a fl- a commercial flight from Pakistan to Malaysia. And at Malaysia, you had to put a hat on at the airport and someone would recognize you and take you to accommodation. Is that right? Yes. Yes. Right. And how long were you in Pakistan for before you took the flight to Malaysia? I stayed in Pakistan close to a month. Okay. Yeah. And how were they, from a customs point of view, if you've got nothing, so you're not even probably having carry-on or anything, how are they going? You're going on an international flight with no luggage. Didn't that raise alarm bells? No, they did not do anything. And they, they just told me that we, we will take care of everything for you till you get there because they were getting paid. And they said, we take you there. We guarantee you that you're going to get there. Once you get there, then you're going to pay us. Imagine even like uh, when, when I got I, I didn't know at that time, but later on I knew that when we get to the airport, we need to go to the counter or we need a stamp like to get into that country. The entry, I did not do that entry, anything. That 
that guy who I followed, they just take me like through a room. And then I was in a room and that was from, from the, from the airport. It was not like a, like a simple guy. He was just with a uniform with everything from the airport and then from the airport out. So this was an airport employee. Yeah, it was an airport. Yeah. Wow. It was sort of like, you know, one of the custom officer, like the immigration yeah. officer, uniform like that. And I believe that maybe it's one of them. So wow. I, do, I don't know how all these things works. And, and that's yeah. why I, I really scared once I got there. But when I got to Indonesia, again. So hang on a minute before we get to Indo. How long were you in Malaysia for? In Malaysia, I was close three weeks in Malaysia. And just staying in the same hotel room for three yes. weeks. Yeah, and I was not allowed to go out. So they're bringing you food? Everything. Everything. Right. And how was that culture shock from being in a hotel room in Malaysia? Because even that would have been very different from Pakistan and Afghanistan. Honestly, I was that panicked that I didn't know what am I doing, where am I going, and what's going to happen to me. Once I got to the plan, after that, I found out that I have really been smacked by someone and I don't know what's going to happen because I watched movies before. And I, after that, I started worrying that they take people and they take the part of their bodies and they... Oh, you thought you were in organ, yeah. organ trafficking. Yeah, yeah scary. Was, yeah, it was so scary. Someone like me... And I believe that so many people got to this uh, process, but but for me it was so scary, and I never ever been in a plane before. And I was thinking, oh my god, they're gonna take me somewhere, and they cut my body, and they take, they will sell my heart, they will sell my kidney because I'm still young, and or maybe they they they're dragging me and. After that, they sell drug on me. I was thinking so many things, and I worried about family. So all these things came together. And when I got to Malaysia, I could not believe that how got it, how I got out of the airport. Did you see other people during this the, this route at the same time as you? Yes, yes, many many people. So That's... were there any women doing this trafficking route with you? I have, because there was no women with me and they were doing the women and children as well. When I got to Malaysia, then I found that it's not just me. In that room, there were other people as well. Oh, you didn't have a room to yourself. Okay. No, there were other people as well. So they they rented that room and they, they had people and they were making one boat. Imagine they were making like 30 people, 25 people in one boat, and then they were sending to Indonesia. So they were so not... you caught a boat from Malaysia to Indo? Yes. And that was that was illegal wow. to Indo. Yeah. Yes, yeah, so in the nighttime. And, you know, one of those uh, jet ski, like yeah. really flying boat. Yeah, okay. So, so they, they How fit. long... How long did it take you to get from Malaysia to Indonesia on the boat? It was it was more than two, three hours, something like that. But so quick. 
yeah but it was so fast it was so fast it was like i was flying in that boat and i never been to the water before imagine every single moment of my journey was like a heart attack for me every single minute of mm. that Mm. And I didn't know what's going to happen. When I got to the bird and the bird was flying and I said, now wait to survive in this bird. Because I really scared of water in Afghanistan. We don't have water and yeah. there's nothing. Was it an open boat? Uh, no, we were under. We were under. under. But yeah. Uh, no life jackets or anything though? Uh, no, nothing. No, yeah. They, they're just... It was like even there was no light when they were uh, riding the boat because it was illegal. And they said, no talking, no shouting. If anything happened, if the boat stopped, then we do not let you. No one should talk anything because we can be stopped anywhere, anytime. And I was I was worried that what's going to happen if, if they stop us. I didn't know about this. And when we got to Indonesia, then again, walking on the bush for hours to get to to another accommodation, and then from there bringing to to Jakarta was another journey. So, okay, so we're skipping over that. So, how long? So you land in Indonesia, and you get yeah. off the boat. Yeah. What happens then once you whereabouts in Indonesia are you landing? Do you know? I don't, I don't know where it was in Indonesia, but it was like um, it was at the middle of the forest. There was just right. a house in there, and heaps of people were there. They, there was Indonesian families that they were just giving us food and drinks, and we were sleeping in there. Lots of mouses everywhere, and I couldn't sleep properly. So it was really, really tough time, and then. They were waiting for, for the time and they just sent people like four people, five people in a group and they sent four of us. Uh, but again, from Indonesia, I don't know how they got the ticket. I don't know where it was. They, I flew from that part to Jakarta. Oh, Again, so you're on another air flight with this fake yeah. using this fake passport as ID. I, I I didn't use that passport anymore. I don't know how they they were just they were just doing everything for us. Like we didn't know that how they're gonna they're gonna like arrange these things. Well, I'm pretty sure it was arranged by the by those immigration officers. Otherwise, there was no way to get out of airport. Even if it's just a domestic airport, there was no way. And they took my passport when I got there. In Malaysia or Indonesia? Indonesia. So how long, so you fly to Jakarta. <coughs> how long are you in Jakarta for? In Jakarta, they, I was there for probably one and a half years. Right. So at what point they said, oh, we can get you to Australia. Did you have, when you were in Pakistan, did you have any idea of whereabouts in Australia you were heading to? I didn't even know Australia. I didn't know even Sydney, Melbourne, or I didn't, I had no clue. They so said you're just, just thinking Austra Australia. Yeah, okay. Australia. 
So why are you then in Jakarta for a year and a half? Uh, for it, when I got to Jakarta, because I had really horrible experience from the smugglers, and uh, when I arrived, uh, most people were just risking their lives again, going by boat, coming to Australia. And then I said, no, I'm not going to do that. I said, that's enough for me. It's really and dangerous. It's really dangerous and I'm not going to do it. And what I did is I I went to, everyone was going to UNHCR to to get a card, like a refugee, not a refugee, an asylum seeker uh, paperwork to just let them stay in there. I went there. I went there because I could speak English and they let me in. I went there. I talked to the UNHCR officer and he said, yeah, if he, he said to me, he said, if you go by boat, you can go by boat, but it's dangerous. It's illegal. And if you want to stay here, then there are a few countries that take refugees and you can stay here. And then I accepted that. I registered with UNHCR very quick. And then I came uh, back to where we were staying and I started talking to other people that what's the process. And I found a few other people that they stayed back and they did not want to go because they, they attempted more than three, four times and their boat was sank and, and they told their experience as well. And I said, what if I stay here and wait for this process? They said, well, we, we are going to do the same thing. And then I, I went to IOM, which is an organization in there, helping financially refugees. Uh, there was an interpreter from Australia. Uh, he was Afghani, but he was interpreter in there. I talked to him. I talked to him. He said, well, the best option is if you stay here. And uh, I can't guarantee you, but one year, two years, three years, four years, you will go somewhere safe and it's better than risking your life. And then I took that advice as well. So, yeah, I stayed for one and a half years. I was still keep asking money from Afghanistan. Then I ran out of money because I was living by my own. Uh, I was not under the shelter of IOM. So I paid rent. I paid for my food and drink. And I was uh, I started working volunteer interpreting for other refugees and asylum seekers in Indonesia. And when I ran out of money, I did not have to pay for the rent and food. Then I moved to another city in Indonesia. I went to immigration. There was a filter. You have to get to immigration first and immigration take you to the, the their uh, detention and then they introduce to the IOM, then IOM uh, take you under their support. So I went to immigration in another city. One of the city did not accept me. I moved from one city to another city and I went to immigration office again. I said, look, I don't have money. I don't have anywhere to stay, no shelter, nothing. So basically I'm homeless, no food, nothing please take me and immigration accepted me and they put me in 
in their detention for for a week. And when they found that I could speak English, they used me as interpreter for, for a while in there. And then they moved me to another accommodation for another month. And then from there, they moved me to, to detention, which is sort of like a prison, like a jail. They call it detention. They moved me there. I was, I was there for 18 months or so. And I, I had a different experience in there. I was living with another 300 people, which was women and children included. So they didn't separate the women and children from the men? It was separated, but uh, but we were still in one in one detention. We could see each other, okay. uh, yeah. But we were in one block, and they were in another block. So, but we could still see each other, and the common area was still the same for all of us. And I was interpreting, and I had two classes. I was teaching English. Were uh, you getting paid for this work, or was it volunteer work just to keep you busy? No, it was just volunteer work. I did not get paid uh, because those people, they didn't have money to pay, honestly. And oh, I, I didn't know whether or not the IO, IOM would pay you. Uh, no, IOM did not pay anyone. So all they could cover was just the food and, uh, and the medications, uh, very basic and the place that we were staying, of course, they were paying for that as well. It was really, really a horrible, horrible place. Like in a very small room, the size of a bathroom, 10 people were sleeping in one room. Wow. So you were really crammed in there. Yeah. And two months, we were absolutely locked in that room. That was their rule. So for two months, we could not get out of that room, 10 people, and we had Why? a toilet. It was sort of torturing. I don't know. Uh, there was no reason for that, but I, I asked, I asked, I sent a letter for, for IAM, for UNHCR, and for immigration. I said, we haven't, we haven't committed any crime. We haven't done anything wrong. And you know, this is our human rights to be free and why we should be locked in a cell for two months. Even we couldn't go to the hall. We couldn't go to the lounge. And they said, well, this is part of the immigration rule. So you have to stay. And we were locked and most people were suffering from, uh, from different skin disease because we didn't get the sun. And you know how tropical Indonesia is and uh, the mattress Everything was, uh, everyone was just so horrible skin disease and itchiness every day. I tried to raise that. I talked to the IOM doctor and I said, well, at least once a week, take us outside under the sun. Otherwise, everyone will get really badly sick. And this sickness is just goes around there. The detention, everyone get it. But yeah, still they didn't they didn't let us till I got out of the I got out of the uh, that room. Then I started to 
have a, an English class. I had an English class, 35 people in afternoon, 35 people in the morning. So it was quite big classes. And I, I tried sort of to manage people. Otherwise, they didn't, they didn't listen to us. Um, I found other people who could speak good English. I found people who could do the drawing and uh, handcrafts. So I found all these people and we, we made a committee, made four or five different classes for women, for children. And then we become sort of a bit powerful in there. And when we had something to say, it was not like individually like before. So we were talking and we were going through a group of people and we were going to talk with the immigration. And after that day, it was a little bit better the situation and their brothers knew mattresses and uh, they listened about our situation and we, we got new mattresses, we got fan because we didn't have and the new people who are coming, it was still the same rule, uh, stay two months locked, but uh, every week, three times a week, we could get them out, play a bit of volleyball outside and get a bit of sun for one or one and a half hour. And then after that, get back to their cell. So, so the situation got a bit better was good. So at what point and how did you find out that you were green lit to come to Australia? Honestly, I haven't chosen Australia and I did not have the option to choose Australia uh, because I was just a refugee in Indonesia. A refugee means like you're just a refugee and you have no option to choose where so you go. Did you? What were the list of countries that you could have gone to? It was Canada, New Zealand, United States, uh, Australia, Germany. And where yeah. did you want to go? I did not have any choice. So uh, any anything you have was a, coming did you, first. Did you I have a ex- preference? Were you like fingers crossed? I'm going to this country, or you didn't care? No, honestly, I didn't care. Even. Even I, I read a few letters and I said, if Indonesia can give me, uh, uh, give me the residency here, I'll stay here. And then they said, no, we can't do that because, uh, because this, this country is already populated. So we, we have no refugee intake, but this is a pathway for refugees. But I was really thinking about, uh, about the UK because I know they didn't even have, but I wrote the letters to the embassy and I just explained that I was your employee and that's what had happened to me. Uh, but they didn't respond that. Uh, so I was, I was thinking honestly about the UK, not about Australia, because I didn't work for Australia and, and most of the people were just coming by boat and and I didn't do that. So I was thinking about UK and and after apart from that, so I didn't have any other idea that where, where am I gonna go? And and suddenly I, I got a call from Australia and 
and said, oh, they said like, are you are you happy to go to Australia? We want to send your case to Australia. I said, I'm happy to stay in Indonesia even if they gave me a residency, somewhere to be a free person. It doesn't matter. I can find a job for myself. I can feed myself anywhere. If I found in Afghanistan, I can do that everywhere else. So then I said, yes, I am very happy. And yeah, it was just so quick after that, after I got a call, then I went for an interview. Uh, I was I was really in a, in a terrible situation at that time. So I, I even committed to suicide and I was hospitalized for 16 days in the ICU. Wow, just out of sheer desperation, you were just, yeah. Yeah, it was it was a tough time, and because you know, my mom, myself, thinking about everything, I lost suddenly everything. From that life, I came to somewhere that I had nothing, no future. Uh, it was, and also inside detention, I forgot about myself. I was just thinking about others. I was interpreting for the counselor almost every day. And the kids, they were coming to me and they were explaining their situation. Like imagine six years, seven years old, and they were thinking what's gonna happen in their future? Where do they go? And some of them were isolated, they were depressed. They were not playing with other kids. And some of them, when they're coming to me, they were thinking that I'm like, like really a good person. They're just sitting on my lap and crying while I was interpreting. It was like, honestly, I forgot myself in Indonesia. And I was just thinking that why this world is like that. Everyone deserved to have a good life, not just a few people. So. We're all human. It doesn't matter what what race, what religion, what language, what land, where we're from, who we are, but we're all human. When I think about that, imagine if something happened to me. If you're there, you don't think, where am I from? You never ask, who am I? You will just run and help me as a human. So that's, that's what I experienced. Like, I know my time was wasted for poor more than four years in Indonesia. But I never think about that, that I was wasted because my mind was opened in Indonesia. My heart opened in Indonesia. I found a real life in Indonesia. I've, now I think I'm not belong to any country. I'm not belong to any religion. Here even, I, I don't think I belong to anywhere. I think I belong to just human being. I belong to the land. I belong to this. We're all, we're all of us from. Because this geography, we just named it. We just, just named it. And we, we just created all these things. But in reality, we're all human. And we need each other. That, that's how I learned from Indonesia. 
I was among different communities, different communities. It was from Sri Lanka, Pakistan, Iran, Afghanistan, Somalia, Malaysia, Indonesia. I mean, many people I've made with many people and I found that the life has got just one purpose to be a good human. And when I left detention, I, I should go back a little bit. When I, when I suicide, I, I was about to die and my friend took me on time and I survived. But after I woke up, I opened my eyes that I have an ICU. And, and when the, the nurses and the doctors, they let the visitors to come and see me, the nurse came and told me, said, we never ever had a patient like you. I said, why? She said, because there is a queue outside. People are waiting to see you. Who are you? And I said, I don't know. And as soon as they open, like, non-stop people are coming. Non-stop people are coming. Like my room on the table was just full of food, drinks, everything. The kids were coming and they were just uh, sort of crying. And, and they said, teacher, why did you do that? We don't want to lose you. And I was, I was so sad. That's how I found I, have, I found a new life. I found a new life in their eyes. And I, I have seen those innocent eyes. And they are just talking to me. And they ask me that, why have I done that? And I regretted that, why have I done that? I have done because I didn't want to see that. I have done that because, because I, was, I was over of that unfair I have done because that was that was that was something that I couldn't tolerate I want to sort of cast your mind back as well to Afghanistan and your mum over there what other family members did you leave there your mum did you have any sisters a sister and my mum it's only two of them. So as they're not men, they're not able to work. Who was financially supporting them? That was another thing that was really annoying me. I know I, I left a bit of money in, in Kabul because I left everything and my friend sold my car. And my mom and my sister was in a really terrible situation and they were living day to day. And they had to move from one suburb to another suburb because after I left, there was a lot of things happened. And one of my cousins who's, who's been helping my family for a very long time, that's why now I'm helping him. I'm helping his family. And, and while I was in Kabul, I found a job for him. He was working in, a, in a one of the international organizations as well. But... Uh, but yeah, the, that organization closed. So he was, he is helping my family financially. And I had, I had nothing else 
and now he's in Pakistan. That's why I, I tried to bring him here. So I launched an application for him and I, I financially help him now. So you've got the call, you're, you've got the interview to come to Australia. What's the process to get here? Uh, when I got the call for an interview, so the first thing is uh, I just go and have an interview. Uh, they've got all my cases through the UNHCR and they read about that. And when I go there, so obviously they have everything in front of me on the table and they know about me. They just ask the question which are already made about my background, about what I have done, who I am. Have I been in any jail or have I committed any crime or, or have I used any sort of weapons and stuff like that? So yeah, these questions. And then after that, they say, okay, you wait for the results. I'll wait for the result. Once they accept it, they do not refuse then the second process is going to the medical check, which it's gonna be by Australian as well. So I went for a medical check, a fully medical check. And then if everything is okay, then the next process is uh, waiting for visa. And that takes from, from a month to years as well. So, but I, I was lucky that I got my visa not, not too long. And I got my visa granted by Immigration Home Affairs. And then they said, okay, now we are sorting your tickets. So they, they booked my ticket and they brought me in Australia. So once, once Australia accepts someone from Indonesia, it's really, it's really a good process. It's really a fair and... It's a luxury process after that. Once you accept it, then a person who lives like that and been through all the hardship and difficulties, then it's a, it's a huge change. It's a huge change. Someone who comes from that sort of situation, Australia brought me, they landed me in Miljura because I didn't have anyone in Australia. They landed me in Miljura I, when I came there, there was a bus came to the airport, a minibus. They, it was, I don't know how many, well, I think four or six people. They took us to the accommodation, which was already organized by, uh, by one of these organizations like SSI and AIMS. Uh, we went there. So food was in the fridge. We had a, everybody had a room, a big house. And one of the social worker took us for shopping. We did a bit of shopping. I mean, whatever we needed, it was there. And then the next day, uh, a social worker came and took us to Centrelink, the bank, registered with everything and did the paperwork that uh, we didn't know about that 
and uh, we went to the center link because for the first three months we don't have to work they can support and we received a few gift cards $25 $50 something like that and then they give you the option join a study or work in these three months some people decide to study some people decide to work it depends on the circumstance and the situation and the family so all these things <laughs> but yeah it was it was really great i i didn't know about that but it was absolutely amazing fantastic was there a moment where you whilst in australia sort of went i'm safe like i've made it well, as soon as I, I arrived in Australia and I have been treated like, like a human, mm. you know, give me the rights of a human, and I felt like I'm safe. I'm somewhere that people, people know me. I am a human being as well. I've got a name. While I was in Indonesia, I mean, as a security reason, I was feeling safe, but I was still called by a number. Really? I, so you weren't even called by your name. Did you do this process under your fake name on the passport or your real name? No, I came with the real name because okay. I had all my documents from the embassy and I, I didn't want to continue with the fake name to just keep continuing that. That, that name was just on the passport. And as soon as I came to Indonesia, the smuggler, they just took the passports. Whoever had this sort of passport, they took it and they didn't give us back. So yeah, then I came and I, I did explain everything to Yunisial and I said, well, I have come like this. I just said the reality, I said, I, I didn't use any passport, my real passport, because I didn't have a real passport. I didn't, I didn't do anything. So it's all I came up to here like this. And they said, okay, yeah, it's, it's very normal. It happens to most of the people. So at what stage now did your friend that was like a brother to you in Kabul, did he have to pay when the smugglers when you were in Indonesia or when you arrived in Australia? No, he he paid because that was the deal and and he had to give sort of uh, reference otherwise they didn't take me so right. he was my reference in there but he paid yeah he paid and was I that had... when you were in Indonesia or Australia no when I was in Indonesia Indo okay yeah he he paid that because he was the one who sold my motorbike he was the one who sold my car because my sister couldn't do that things. So he did everything for me and he sorted out. But yeah, so everything everything finished. Otherwise, they, they don't want to take someone. So what year did you arrive in Australia? I arrived on December 2016. Okay. And so... What have you been doing? We're now in December 2022, so you're six years. Can you believe it? Six years now in the country. Um, what have you been doing since then and what, is, what are the plans 
sort of moving forward? Uh, it's been so quick, as you said, like, I can't believe that it's been six years. And honestly, I'm a bit lost in Australia because so many options in here to do yeah. what. I started working, of course, because I owed my friend. I had to pay back. My family was really in a really bad situation. I had to support my mom. I had to support my sister. And I had to support my cousin as well because he spent a lot of money for my family. So I had no other option to work. I work. I've been working since 2017. Mm -hmm. uh, I did not study yet in Australia. But of course, I have been always involved volunteer for the community works, mm -hmm. which is which is that's now my background from Indonesia. I can't stop myself. And uh, yeah, I I do a bit of community work, and sometimes if somebody needs help, uh, I just volunteer, try to help if I have time, and I'm with the Blue Mountain refugee support as well and i have been doing construction job from the beginning now i'm operating a truck i'm yep. a truck driver now so yep. yeah uh, but but still i haven't found myself in this uh, industry so maybe in the future i can't i can't say 100 percent but but in the future, I will probably go back to studying and doing a career. How did you feel about the withdrawal from the coalition and how that all went down from Afghanistan? Well, I, I sort of knew that it's going to happen even when uh, the, the meeting started in Qatar. Mm. So sort of knew that it's going to happen one day because uh, because the Taliban were getting stronger and stronger and, and the corruption was getting stronger and stronger in Afghanistan too. And I knew that it's going to be another changes. That's why I told my cousin already, I said, you got to get out of the country because it's going to happen. But he said, no, it's not going to happen. Still, government is there. But it happened and it's very sad. It's very sad because 20 years work, 20 years efforts, 20 years sacrifice, 20 years time, money, everything. It's just wasted. It's just wasted in Afghanistan. Unfortunately, it's not just about Afghani people from Afghanistan. I, I know how many soldiers from all around the world. Mm. We have lost them. How about their family? How about the children? So many soldiers in Afghanistan got killed. They sacrificed their lives for bringing peace insecurity in Afghanistan. And it's, when I think about all these, I just like 
really sad. I'm so sad that why it happened again. I think at least, and I've heard some people reflect on it that served over there, and they're saying at least a generation knew what it was like not to be under Taliban rule, and the girls got some education, and um, at least they can see something other than Taliban rule. Um, yeah. Your mum and your sister, are you trying to get them to Australia? My mum has fortunately arrived in Australia this year on January. Yay! <laughs> That's the biggest news. <laughs> yeah, that that was that was a big thing happening in my life. So uh, after nine years, we we have seen each other and after a very long time. Yeah, it was reunited with mom was a big thing but my sister she lives in iran she's got married while i was not there and her marriage was not a proper marriage as well because of the situation and circumstance so we, we couldn't we couldn't get a wedding party or anything so all my mom did is just let her go with someone to be safe because there was no one else to support. Uh, she lives in Iran. She, at least she's she's safe from. She's not one hundred percent safe, but, but at least she's not in Afghanistan. So yes, that's that's the sad part of it, but the good part of it, because my mom is here, and I don't need to worry about her. Oh my goodness, I could only imagine how emotional that reunion would have been just to see her after nine years and have her here. Amazing. That was that was the moment that even I had the COVID on that time. That was another oh, worst no! thing. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but it's still it's still I couldn't hold, you know, myself not to go and pick up my mom said, Mom, I've got the COVID, but I still come and pick you up because because I can't I can't see this moment that you go to another hotel for another four weeks or two weeks or three weeks. I just picked up my mom from the airport and brought her home. I said, Mom, I can't hug you. I'm sorry, but but still there is a room for you. So you just stay there till I get clear of this COVID. And uh, mom already had the COVID before in Afghanistan, in Pakistan. And so she said, that's fine, no problem. And yeah, when I got cleared from the COVID, I spent days with my mom. Like I was just sitting with my mom and I was talking to her and crying. And so it was really, it was really emotional. Oh, of course. Of course. Now your mum's here. What's what's 2023 hold for Esmat? Uh 2023, I I believe it's gonna be it's gonna be really a good year for me because I had a big achievement on 2022. And uh getting 20, your mum here? Yeah getting yeah. my mom here 
and 2023 is is a year that I know my mom keep pushing me to get married, but uh, <laughs> I'm thinking like yeah to get a bit more stable, find myself in Australia, and hopefully yeah by the end of this year, if I can start studying, so that's my goal for the 2023. Are you gonna I, study law? Uh, I don't think so. If I can study law back because it's it's a very difficult subject, and especially if it's another language, it's not easy, but it's not impossible as well. Mm. I'm trying to to find a pathway for that, but I can't directly go study law. But who knows in the future if it happens. Esmat, I wish you all the best. Thank you so much for coming on and telling your story. I think it's important for people to know the other side of um, the reality of, of, of war and, um, and how fortunate we are to live in a country such as Australia. So thank you so much for coming on. Um, those that want to read Esmat's story, Campfire of the Heart by Natalie Stockdale, and uh, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you, Fiona, for having me to this podcast and thank you so much. Pleasure. Thanks for taking a moment to listen, everyone. We hope this episode inspired you as much as it did us. If you know somebody who also needs a little inspiration, then please share this podcast with them. Also, don't forget to subscribe on your fave podcast app and rate and review us because that helps inspire us to keep making them. 